is Bad Boys and Beyond with your hosts, Mike Payton and Keith Black Trudeau. The game's over and the Pistons have won the world championship. Hi there, sport fans. This is Johnny Most reporting for the Boston Celtics. And we're starting to see the bang-bang stuff now. Rodman is all over Bird. And there is a violent, violent knockdown by Lambert. Oh, my. A completely unnecessary foul by Lambert. And he has the audacity to complain about something. They have been called a dirty ball club, and I can see why. This is a typical, a typical disgusting display by Rodman Lambeer and Isaiah Thomas. The yellow, gutless way they do things here. Now the other Lord Fortnoy's coming in, the other good guy coming in, Rick Mahorn, the guy who hit people from behind have a great deal of contempt and disrespect for this kid right now because of the blind side swipe he took at Bird. It was Dennis Rodman, and he sneers. He didn't do it because he's a goody good boy. He wouldn't do something nasty like that. Dennis Rodman did not incur my respect anyway. In fact, tell that to these miserable Detroit media people because they called me jerk of the week. Well, fine, I'll be a jerk of the week, but I'll be myself. I, I wouldn't be like them for all the money in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary voice of Celtics play-by-play man, Johnny Most. Welcome to Bad Boys and Beyond. This is the Pistons and Celtics rivalry episode. I'm your host, Mike Payton. With me, as always, is Keith Black Trudeau. Keith, did Johnny Most have the most uh, not great radio voice ever? Yeah, he was like... John, Johnny Most was the original... Like, the the original, original NBA... Uh, like voice of a, an NBA team uh, for the Celtics. Yeah, he was like George Blaha if George Blaha was a chain smoker, like an, yeah. a chain smoker and an unhinged uh, uh, lunatic homer. And I know, I know, I'm, I know Celtics fans swear by the guy. Most of them weren't alive to hear him uh, call a game. Uh, but yeah, he 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 is kind of. Uh, he in some ways he kind of epitomizes uh this rivalry uh because yeah um he was so offended when the when the pistons would uh take uh liberties but it's not like the celtics didn't do the same thing yeah you 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 cannot watch any sort of uh pistons um documentary whatever whatever what have you without even even on the you know the 1988 um, Pistons uh uh year in review tape that I I completely wore out in my VCR you would hear Johnny Most's voice on that as well like they just he just he's always he's always attached to this rivalry because of the way that he reacted to everything and uh yeah he was very very emotional about about uh the, the Celtics players getting beaten up but probably didn't have much of a problem with Robert Parrish punching Bill Lambeer oh, in the face. Yeah, that was that was completely fair play. Yep. Had no problem with that. Uh but we'll we'll get to that obviously. Uh as we mentioned, we're going to do the Pistons Celtics rivalry today and we're going to we're going to start all the way back before 
geez, before our parents were born. <laughs> well, speak for yourself. This is this is where Keith this is where Keith gets weird. Like the fact that he knows all this stuff, you know, I, when, once you hit like Wes unselled, that's where, that's where my knowledge uh, runs out. And, uh, but no, you're going all the way back. You, he's talking to me about some guy named Bailey Howell, which will come up later on, but I have no idea who that is. Uh, so yeah. Um, before we get into everything, do you, do you want to spend like 30 seconds talking about last night? I, I really don't, but okay. I mean, that's fine. We, we, oh, we, we put it into the ether. We now have to talk about well, it. The Pistons played a, uh, a really great game against the, the Clippers and, uh, you know, two teams that are on losing streaks had the game in the bag, fumbled that bag, and then took that bag and threw it into the river in overtime, scoring just three points. Three points in an entire overtime period and losing. It was the only the third time and I think close to 13,000 games that a team has been up by 14 points with three minutes left or more and lost. Uh, yeah, there's there's no and, – and, and I'm I, – I like to think I have a pretty good memory. I've been following the Pistons for real, really close to 30 years now, or over 30 years. Um, this was the worst fourth quarter collapse, and it's not even close that I've ever seen following this team. It was just a complete mental. I, I've never seen a, a team lose a game, uh, to where the other team has conceded and has emptied their bench. I've never seen that happen in any NBA game. I, I'm sure it has happened once or twice, uh, that I'm just not aware of, and I haven't seen it, but I personally have not seen anything like that before in my life it was that this will definitely go down as the low point of the season I don't care if they lose to uh, the Milwaukee Bucks by 75 points that will not be as bad as this a game that they won and essentially you know gave away uh, because they got careless just I'm going to speak in generalities because if we go over player by player, you know, who, who screwed up when we're going to be doing the show on that, on this instead of our actual topic. So I, I'm going to leave it at that. This franchise, I think has a little bit of soul searching to do. And I don't think I'm being too melodramatic. Um, they, I think they've accumulated a, a great deal of talent uh, over the last few years, most of it young talent. Uh, but I don't think they've done a good job of putting together a team. And that needs to be the next step moving forward. Uh, maybe at the trade deadline, maybe in the off season, I don't know, but at some point they need to start moving pieces around and finding pieces that fit uh, because there's no right now. There's a lot of talent on this team. There's no leadership. Yeah. Uh, there's no defense being played. It, I'm, I'm not absolving Dwayne Casey uh, of this situation. This is his team. Uh, even with very low expectations, they're still the worst team in the NBA uh, as we are currently talking on December 27th, 2022. Uh, the the entire, I, again, I, I know, I'm sure Troy Weaver, the, the general manager, is is probably sitting back saying, okay, this is fine. We're, we're locking in our, our top lottery odds right now. Uh, but the lottery alone is not going to save this team. I don't care if they do land the number one pick. Uh, they are they are going to have to 
build a more cohesive roster. And that I think falls squarely uh, on the shoulders of Troy Weaver, who's done a very good job at this point, but needs to prove himself as, as a team builder now, not just a guy that can find talent. Right. I see a lot of guys out there playing for themselves. And, uh, and honestly, look, I mean, if your name's not Cade Cunningham, Jalen Ivey, or uh, uh, Jalen Duran, um, you, you're you're not safe. Uh, that means anybody. Trade trade Bay. That's whatever you know. Trade beef stew. Uh, if you if you if you which see would, some, which would break my heart because I don't think no, I I, I, think, I get it. I think but... of every player that played last night, every player that was on the team last night. I think he probably screwed up the least yeah uh, but look to your point when you are this bad uh there can be no sacred cows uh you you need to look at any and all options because this they they cannot have another season like this next year or i i think people are going to start turning on on this rebuild because eventually you have to show progress we're in year three <laughs> That's fine. You can still be bad in your year four. You need to be competitive. I, you know, I don't even care if it's a 500, but you need to show that you are getting better because right now they just have talent. They're not getting better. Right. Look, I know everybody wants to protect Dwayne Casey, but I don't, I don't, I don't see it, man. I, I just don't see it. I'm sorry. It's not like he's got to go. And I've never, I'm not the guy who does this. I'm not the guy who, who jumps in on the fire this guy, fire that guy, but like, it's not working. It's just, it's not working. And you, you mentioned that there needs to be progress by year four. Well, I, I say, screw that year three, you know, year two. I mean, at least there was a little bit of progress at the end of the last season that you could hang your hat on and say, okay, well, they're, they're getting better. They're beating good teams. They're beating Toronto. They're going out there. They're doing things, but then they, they come out of there. the worst team in the league, man. They, nothing has gotten better even when they had Cade Cunningham it was things were still bad it, it's only gotten worse since he's gotten injured which obviously when your best best player goes down things get worse but it, there's just it's it, I don't know I I just don't see how you, I don't if 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 this were a thing where you brought Dwayne Casey into your office for a review and you said show me why you should still be here I I just don't I don't see how what he could say that would make me say, okay, uh, I'll give you another year. You're not wrong, but at, at the same time, he doesn't exactly have a winning hand. Uh, he has, like I said before, he's got, there's, there's talent on this team. There's real talent. I've been saying it all year. This is, this should not be the worst team in the league. However, it just doesn't fit together. You yeah. have no defense at all. In, in an era where the wing position is at a premium, they have the worst wing defenders in the entire league. And they, you have one of the worst in, in Bojan Bogdanovic and then another one of the worst uh, in Sadiq Bey backing him up. Like, so there, there's no there's no fix for that. There's no respite. It's You have a collection of guys. The one wing he does have, Isaiah Livers, that plays defense is injured uh, repeatedly. And you just that's generally why they're so bad defensively is they just can't find any options – uh, any answers uh, at the wing positions. So, yeah, uh, on one hand, Dwayne Casey, you're right. Dwayne Casey has no argument to keep his job right now. But if they're this bad a year from now, I don't think Troy Weaver has an argument to keep his job because he needs to 
build a team that works. And right now this team doesn't work. It's just a bunch of, like you said before, it's, it's a lot of guys that put up numbers, but they don't necessarily play together very well as a team, but that also falls on Casey as well as Troy Weaver. It's like a team full of Sharif Abdul Rahim's or, or Zach Levine's. It's like a team full of Zach Levine's. All right, let's, uh, let's just, (laughs) <laughs> let's carry on here. Let's move on and let's get to our actual topic. Let's go all the way back to the 1950s when the Pistons were the talk of the town in the NBA. I don't, they, to be honest with you, they, they weren't even the talk of the town in Detroit. Uh, but the, the Pistons Celtics rivalry, even though both of these teams were, have been around since the 1940s, both of these franchises, uh, the Pistons ironically were the, the more well-known franchise being a, essentially a mini dynasty in the National Basketball League in the 1940s. Uh, they, they were offered a hefty sum of money to come over to the NBA uh, a couple of years in. I think it was the BAA back then, but it's the same league. And uh, uh, they, they were the team that was coming in with success. And then it, it, while they were still in Fort Wayne, they made the finals a couple of times in the 1950s. Meanwhile, uh, the Celtics were known as this, you know, flashy offensive team with Bob Cousy that didn't do anything in the playoffs. And that really all changed in 1957, or excuse me, 1956, when the, the Celtics drafted Bill Russell and subsequently became the, the winningest franchise in the history of sports. And halfway through that season, uh, Fred Zollner, the owner of the Pistons, makes a decision. He is going to go for the big time. He is going to move his franchise out of little Fort Wayne, Indiana, to Detroit, one of the largest cities in America at the time. And this essentially is where the rivalry begins, because in the very first game in Detroit, the season opener, we have the Pistons and the Hawks. I'm going to let that sink in for everybody. Uh, so back back in that, in that time, you had a lot of teams buying, uh, or I should say selling their home dates to other cities, uh, or in other arena owners uh, for it's, it's like you would see today with college football, where you have, you know, little uh, universities agreeing to play Alabama and you wonder why it's because they're getting paid a lot of money for it. Uh, it, This was much the same thing. And I think it was the Hawks that sold uh, their home, one of their home games to the Pistons. In any case, it, the very first night of the NBA Detroit was a uh, double header that started at seven 30 uh, brilliant scheduling there uh, in Olympia uh, Stadium in Detroit. And uh, first game was the, the the Hawks, who were the defending Western Conference champions against the Knicks. And then sometime around 10, 10.30, the Pistons tipped off their very first game in Detroit against the Celtics. Jeez, this is pre-24 uh, uh, second shot clock. Like, so this is... No, 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 this is not the... the the, the shot clock uh, came in in 1954. Oh, okay. Oh man, jeez. I was I was thinking if it was pre pre shot clock, you're basically looking at George Yardley like dribbling the ball for 20 minutes until, you know, it's like um, a a 20 to 18 final score. No, the the Pistons actually benefited tremendously from the shot clock. The very first two years of the the shot clock, the Fort Wayne Pistons went to the finals uh, mainly because they had a lot of scores like Yardley. And they they had no big men. They benefited from the up-tempo game. Uh, But as far as this game itself, uh, the Pistons actually started out pretty well. Uh, 
they led they had a 10 point lead at halftime and then the Celtics blew them out in the second half. Uh they won 105-94. Uh your your top performers from that game, Bill Sharman led all scorers with 24. George Ardley for the Pistons had 20. Bill Russell had 15 points, 26 rebounds, and we'll never know how many block shots because they didn't keep track back then. But uh, there's there's good reason to believe he probably averaged about seven or eight block shots a game uh, yeah, during I his prime. It. Yep. And that was Detroit's sort of welcome to the NBA. Uh, and it, it, we'll, we'll do a history of the Pistons, of course, at, at some point. Uh, but the Pistons at that time were they had trouble um, really distinguishing themselves. The the Lions were the class of the NFL. Uh, at the, that was the last time they were the class of the NFL. Uh, then you had the Wings with Gordy Howe, and you had the Tigers, uh, who were an institution at that. So the Pistons really had trouble getting traction. And the Celtics, uh, meanwhile, they were already the defending champions. Um, they were they were just beginning their their prime. Uh, they they won the first six games of this rivalry. They won eight out of the ten uh, meetings that season, and from that point on, it just gets laughable. <laughs> the 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 Celtics uh, won seventeen straight meetings with the Pistons between nineteen fifty eight and nineteen sixty. Uh, between nineteen sixty two and nineteen sixty five, they had a twelve game winning streak, sandwiched uh, with a fourteen game winning streak with one loss to the Pistons in between. So over a three-year span, the the Celtics went 26-1 and one against the Pistons. Uh, and what makes this even – what makes this even um, more astonishing to me is that the, they were in different conferences. The Pistons were a Western uh, – well, they were called divisions back then, but you get it. Uh, the, the Celtics were in the East back then. The Pistons were in the West. So they were playing – they were actually playing each other half as often – as they would if they were in the same conference. Uh, and even so, the Celtics during the Russell era went 86 and 18 against the Pistons, which is that that is like I, I can't even fathom that number for an NBA for two professional franchises. That's like a, a number you'd expect from like a Big Ten team against a Mac team. Like yeah. This is it, like Appalachian like, State beating Michigan yeah. every that way. It's like it's like they shouldn't even be in in the same league. Uh but that brings us to 1968. The very uh, first playoff matchup between the two teams. Yep. The everything sort of picked up for the Pistons, uh, who had been the NBA's worst franchise of the decade to that point. Uh, 19, the year prior, they had uh, lucked into drafting Dave Bing because they had the number two pick. They wanted Cassie Russell with the first pick. They landed, they landed the two pick and the coin flip instead. And they had to settle for Dave Bing, who turned out to be one of the most explosive point guards of all time. And he was the league's leading scorer uh, in year two. Uh, broke Will Chamberlain's stranglehold on that uh, number. And... Uh, they had their first playoff meeting. This was also uh, the year the Pistons briefly moved to the East uh, for a few seasons. And as it so happens, they made the playoffs and they, they met the Celtics who still had, you know, Bill Russell, John Havlicek, Sam Jones. Uh, they were no longer the champions at that point, but they were, they were looking to get back into it and win some more rings, which they did. It's so odd and, to me that the Pistons were in the Western Conference and the Red Wings were in the Western Conference for the longest time too. 
like they're not they're like this far away from the west as you can get well you gotta understand back then you know the united states for for most for all intents and purposes uh extended as far west as as missouri oh okay we we didn't have franchises in los angeles at the like minnesota and st louis were like the western outposts of the sporting world of the united states uh it wasn't until you know much later where we had teams expanding into California. And then for a while, California was the only place that had uh, enough uh, people and money to support a pro franchise. So yeah, Fort Wayne, Indiana was kind of like, that was like Midwest, like as far West as you can go back, back then. Okay. Fair enough. So yeah. And that same thing with the wings, the wings, I think were the most, I think they might've been the Western most NHL franchise of the original six. Were they, or were they not? I don't remember. Um, uh, I, hockey is is beyond my beyond my depth, so I, I have to ask that question. No, that seems about right. Sure, maybe Chicago. Oh yeah, obviously Chicago. Yeah. Uh, let me see. I don't even know the original six. Uh, the original six NHL franchises: New York, Boston, and, uh, Detroit, Chicago, Toronto, Montreal. So Detroit was the second most yeah. Western city in the nhl for for decades all right so um welcome right, to geography to, and beyond back to the topic at hand uh the the pistons actually were surprisingly competitive in this series uh they 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 split the first two games each of them winning at home it was one of those weird series where they alternated home games every single game uh the pistons actually Blew out Boston uh, on the road in game three to take a 2-1 lead. Uh, They were just a couple games away from eliminating the Celtics. Uh, Dave Bing was electric the whole series, had 27 points, 7 assists. And then Bill Russell put his foot down. Uh, Celtics went right back to Detroit for game four and throttled the Pistons uh, 135-110. to Uh, They took that game. And then in game five, uh, Bailey Howell... uh, who my, my esteemed co-host mentioned earlier, uh, Bailey Howell, uh, who we will not do an episode on, uh, even though he was very influential. Uh, combo forward, he's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, he started his career with the Pistons, uh, made four uh, consecutive All-Star games, and the Pistons uh, stupidly traded him away. Uh, no disrespect to Derry Disginger, but they stupidly traded him away, and he... To, to Baltimore, but later on he found a home in Boston, and he was essentially um, the new third wheel for them, or third or fourth wheel for them, or third wheel offensively, I should say, uh, that sparked them back to uh, championship contention. And Bailey Howell, I bring this up because Bailey Howell skewers the Pistons for 30 points in Game 5. And Dave Bing comes back. He scores 44 in Game 6. Again, he was the highest scorer for this, this series, Uh offensively he was easily the best player uh but it, it just wasn't enough uh the Celtics won the series four games to two they go on they reclaim their throne in the finals and then do it again the next season and then Bill Russell rides off into the sunset uh as just the greatest winner of all time 11 championships in 13 years what, what else can you say yeah they you know obviously one of the greats of all time and uh Sadly, we lost him here in 2022, but uh, but it's nice to see the NBA honoring him with the patches on the jerseys. Right. Uh, but 
But uh, things start to kind of turn around for both teams a little bit there in the 70s. Uh, the Pistons draft Bob Lanier and the, and, uh, the 1970 draft. Um, and then obviously later on in, in the 70s, things are going to get a little bit crazier. But you wanted to uh, – you wanted to specifically talk about Bob the 1970s draft with Bob Lanier. Yeah, I I, I wrote uh, somewhat of a memorial for for Bob Lanier uh, when he passed away over the summer. But uh, the thing that I focused on uh, in the early part of his career was uh, the 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 Celtics really wanted Bob. Look, Bob Lanier was the best player in college basketball the year following. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar leaving for the NBA. He was the the most dominant player. He led St. Bonaventure of all schools to the final four. Uh, never actually got to participate in it because he tore his uh, ACL uh, in the regional final, but he, he was the prize and he grew up uh, in the area. Uh, he was a huge Boston Celtics fan and Red Auerbach really wanted him, uh, but Unfortunately for the Pistons, there was one thing that the Pistons were better at the Celtics uh, at that time, and that was losing games. <laughs> and, and so they actually uh, won their coin flip uh, for the, to, to land the number one pick for the 1970 draft. Uh, they took Bob Lanier, and I think the Celtics had to settle for the fourth pick. Uh, they wound up drafting Dave Cowens out of Florida State, who both of these men wound up uh, – being Hall of Famers, but the Celtics with Dave Collins won two more championships. And that was just kind of how the luck went with the Pistons. That I, I still, in my estimation, Bob Lanier was a better overall player than Dave Collins, but the Celtics just had a better organization. They had way more, way more talent uh, to build around him. And that, 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 that's just kind of how it went for the 70s, where the Pistons had some moderate success with, with Bob Lanier. Never any real playoff success. Meanwhile, the Celtics are still stacking rings even after Bill Russell retired. Uh, so, and you want to get to uh, the the NBA drafts of uh, seventy eight through eighty one, correct? Correct. Well, you know, so this is really where this is good. I really what I want to do. We're teeing up really the bulk of what we're about to discuss, which is the nineteen eighties. Correct. This all really starts in nineteen seventy eight when the uh, the Boston Celtics select Larry Bird with the six overall pick, even though Larry didn't even start playing until uh, 1979, which, Keith, you're going to have to explain to me how that works. How do you draft a college basketball player before he's done with college? Well, because Larry Bird was essentially a... a... All right, let, let's go back in time. Uh, Larry Bird originally was supposed to go to Indiana in, uh, I want to say, 1975. He would have been a freshman. Um, and he quits school before ever playing a game. Uh, so uh, the next season, Indiana State uh, gets him to come there. So, But essentially, he's a year behind the rest of his uh, graduation class at that point. So he plays the full four seasons at Indiana State. But after his third season, he becomes NBA draft eligible, which would have been the 1978 draft. So back then, you didn't declare. You just, after four years, you were eligible. Uh, so the Celtics were able to draft Larry Bird, uh, even though he he fully intended to return to Indiana State for his his essentially fifth-year senior season. That That's why he was – I know everyone looks at that cross-eyed, but that's the reason why. 
Yeah, that's just weird. Just imagine being on campus at Indiana State and being like, yeah, you know, I, I play for the Boston Celtics. Yeah, I'll be there next year. Well, I mean, it was, yeah, they, they, they technically couldn't pay him a dime, you know, because he was still in college. But, right. I mean, they had his draft rights. But I'm, I'm sure he signed his first contract the day after, you know, the Final Four ended. Well, Larry had to make sure that he lost to Magic yeah. <laughs> in the final in the uh, finals of the uh, <clears throat> college finals there. So um, 1981, the Pistons get their own version of Larry Bird with uh, uh, Isaiah Thomas coming in. You, you had mentioned some some there was some fleecing, though, the year before that yeah. in the 1980 draft. Yeah. So Red Hour back fleeces Dick Vitale. Yeah. This succession of drafts um, just just nasty. Uh the the seventy nine draft we're going to skip past, uh, but just shortly after the seventy nine draft, uh, the the Pistons back in the nineteen seventies uh, were essentially being run by one guy, and that was Dick Vitale. Uh, everyone knows him as an ESPN commentator, uh, but back then he was a very successful college coach that decided at the University of Detroit that decided to uh, try his hand at the big leagues. Uh, he com- he comes over to the Pistons, and the Pistons essentially have no GM uh, at that point. They're being like Bill Davidson, the team owner is directly making deals. So, but he's doing so at the behest of Dick Vitale. So Dick Vitale, even though he never had the job title, was essentially coach and general manager. All right. So uh, Dick Vitale, not very patient guy. Uh, he he was in a win now mode. Which, to be fair, you have an aging Bob Lanier. You kind of need to be in win now mode at that point. Uh, he agrees to deal. He has two first round picks coming up in 1980. Uh, uh, theirs and someone else's, I forget who. And he agrees to trade both of them uh, to the Boston Celtics. And this all came about because ML Carr, who was a a Pistons guard, a very good one at the time, uh, fan favorite hustle guy, he decides to sign with the Boston Celtics in 1979. And by the rules of that time, you couldn't outright sign. It had to be a sign and trade. So the Pistons had to work out compensation. And for some, I, I can't ever make sense of these deals because the Pistons were the ones supposed to be getting compensated. And they do get uh, Bob McAdoo, who is a, at that point, a future Hall of Famer and a former league MVP. Uh, but as part of the deal, they give up two first round picks in 1980, including their own, in the sign and trade deal where they're losing the guy in the sign and trade. So uh, Red Auerbach knew right away that this was a fleecing uh McAdoo just had kind of he was getting banged up he he was um his knees weren't great his motivation to play was uh not exactly at an all-time high uh he did not mesh well with with Bob Lanier at all uh the the Pistons uh were were this was a very very bad deal uh and not only did it screw them the first season it screwed them the second season and shortly after that deal was made, uh, I don't want to say a month into the season, uh, Bill Davidson says, I've seen enough. He fires Dick Vitale. He brings in trader Jack McCloskey, who everybody knows uh, that's a, that grew up watching the Pistons. And McCloskey's first move is to blow it up, uh, and rightfully so. But in blowing it up, he, is, he tanks the, the season in a, in, in a year the Pistons don't even have a draft pick. So the Pistons finished with their worst record uh, ever to that point, 16 and 66. It's still the worst record in, in team history. And and for th- I'm going to say this a third time for emphasis. The Pistons did not own their own draft pick. The Celtics <laughs> did. 
So instead of getting the number one pick that's that uh, following summer, the Celtics got the number one pick. And this is after they had already gone to the conference finals with Larry freaking Bird. So Red Auerbach, the brilliant GM that he was, uh, he doubles down on his luck. Uh, he says, I don't love anybody at the number one pick. I'm going to trade the number one pick uh, to Golden State for their number three pick plus a center that is undervalued in Robert Parrish. Uh, fair enough. Robert Parrish is a very good player. And with that number three pick, he drafts Kevin McHale. Uh, so essentially, in in his uh, impatience, Dick Vitale is essentially gift-wrapped uh, Red Auerbach a dynasty. Uh, they were already very good with Larry Bird. I don't know if they ever would have won multiple championships with Larry Bird with had they not uh, fleeced Detroit for that number one pick and gotten Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish. And at that point, the Celtics were set up for the next decade. What do you, what do you think that phone call sounded like when Dick Vitale called Red Eye? I mean, I don't know if it was a phone call. I don't know if they sent messages through messenger pigeons. I, I don't know how they communicated back then. Because I think it was probably like, I need Bob McAdoo, baby. Give me Bob McAdoo. He's a high riser, baby. I'll give you my draft picks. You can go get Kevin McHale, baby. We don't want Joe Barry Carroll. I can see it working out that way. I I, I honestly think that's how that conversation probably went. He's a dynamite dunker, baby. All right, I'm done. And then Dick Vitale never returned to coaching again. Nope, he didn't. That's where that next thing you know, he's a TV personality. Uh, and then, as we mentioned in 1981, the Pistons draft Isaiah, yep. and we are off to the races. Uh, previous to all of this, in 1978, the Pistons rejoin the Eastern Conference for good now, and we get to the 1980s, where uh, we're gonna we're gonna fast forward all the way to 1985 where the Pistons and Celtics meet up in the Eastern Conference Finals for the first time ever. Keith, your thoughts on this first matchup? I love the 85 series. I, I think it's just like, it's such a, if this were a movie series, this would be a great first picture. Uh, like this first start to a trilogy. Does a great job of establishing both teams, uh, the, the motivations for each of them. Uh, the, the Detroit Pistons, for the first time in really roughly 30 years since they moved to Detroit, are finally a consistent winner with Isaiah Thomas and, and Kelly Trapuca and Vinnie Johnson and Bill Lambeer. Uh, they have multiple all-stars. The, the Celtics at that point were the defending world champions uh, with the guys I mentioned before, Bird Parrish, McHale. And both of these teams, the Pistons had just won their first playoff series in God knows how long, the first of the Isaiah Thomas era. Uh, against the Nets they swept them so they were they were coming in red hot and the Celtics immediately uh and I want to make a point here uh the Celtics still had no real respect for the Detroit Pistons despite you know all of their talent uh at what point during this season prior to this playoffs uh this playoff series uh Kevin McHale drops 56 points on the Pistons and it, the game is essentially a contest to see how many points they can get McHale to score. Like they weren't even running offense. They were just giving it to McHale over and over again uh, because that, that was the game was not taken seriously, but they knew they were going to win. It was just a matter of let, let's, let, let's have some fun while we're doing it. And to be, 
to be fair to the Pistons, the, the Hawks suffered the same fate a week later when Bird uh, decides he's going to see if he can beat McHale's 56 and score 60. But the, the 56 by McHale is the most points scored by uh, a player on either team in this rivalry. Uh, George Yardley did hit the Celtics up for 51 points, I think, in the late 50s, but the Pistons lost anyway. Um, so setting the table for this series, uh, the, the Silver Dome, where the Pistons played back then, uh, the roof caved in in a, snow, in a freak snowstorm. So they're not even playing in, in their usual home arena. They're playing in Joe Louis Arena, the hockey stadium in downtown, which was a great atmosphere. Uh, but also kind of weird that they had to do that. Uh, so the, the very first game in this uh, Bird-Isaiah rivalry, the Celtics won by 34 points. That was just kind of the measuring stick, uh, how far the Celtics were ahead of the Pistons at that point. And they win the first two games of the series easily. They come to Detroit. Everyone thinks Detroit is coming home to kind of die here. And they don't uh, – the, the Pistons come from behind. They win game three. Uh, Bill Ambeer, who was a Celtics killer for most of his career, scores 27 points. Isaiah, I think, has 25. Uh, Terry Tyler has 18 off the bench. Uh, they, they play an energized, inspired game. They win game three. And game four, the Celtics try to take it back. And, man, the, uh, the this is, to me, is the most famous game in the whole rivalry. Uh, the, the Celtics are up double figures after three quarters. It looks like they're going to put a, a hammer lock on the series. And Vinnie Johnson, the, the third guard on the Pistons, uh, comes to life, scores 22 points in the fourth quarter. I think it's 10 out of 11 uh, shots, like all mid-rangers. It was great. And the, the crowd just is – they're hysterical uh, by the end of the game. It, it is such a great moment in Pistons history. And this is the game where uh, Danny Ainge dubs Vinnie Johnson the microwave. And so we, we think at that point, okay, we were the, the Pistons showed that they're for real. They've, they've tied the series. Uh, it's 2-2. They're going to go to game. They're going to go to Boston. They're going to be competitive in game five. And I, they, they were to a point. They, they stayed in it for a couple of quarters, but Bird absolutely just, destroyed them. He had 43 points. Uh, they, they come home. Uh, the, the the Pistons get closed out by the Celtics. And at that point, the Celtics had kind of gotten tired of the Pistons. Uh, Lambeer at that time was already irritating the hell out of them. Uh, they weren't necessarily a defensive team, but they were a very physical team. And Bird left them uh, with a quote, uh, they're not even better than Cleveland, which is the team the Celtics beat in the first round. And that was kind of like a parting salvo uh, to what was of actually a, a way more competitive series than people uh, anticipated. Yep, classic Larry Bird smack talk. Uh, yeah, you know, everybody looks at Larry like he was some uh, great you know, uh, sportsman, whatever you want to say, but that guy talked more smack than anybody. Yeah, famously, I, famously would tell yeah. players what he was going to do and then do it. Um, yeah, the and, but that was the thing though. He always backed it up, and and against the Pistons, uh, they just had no answer for him in that series. They and that was kind of 
that was one of the series that that caused them to reevaluate their philosophy and building a team. Like, do we really want to be this fast break team built around Isaiah Thomas? Uh, because you know we we're ha- we're having trouble getting stops in the playoffs. And yeah, Larry Bird for that series, uh, just a monster. Averaged twenty eight points, ten rebounds, six assists. Uh, they they could not stop him, and that. I think was a big part of uh, well, one of the few reasons why they uh, changed their team around. And one of the big uh, decisions that they made was a year later, they trade Kelly Tribuca to Utah. They go and get Adrian Dantley, uh, who is much more of a slower uh, half court player, uh, more of a defensive guy, certainly than Kelly Tribuca. But I think the main reason was that he was the Celtics killer of all the Celtics killers they could find. Uh, he was the biggest one. He was too strong for Larry Bird to deal with in the post. He was too quick for either Robert Parrish or Kevin McHale. Uh, Adrian Danley was essentially a six, four power forward, uh, solid muscle, but not very, not exactly a wide body. Uh, if you looked at him today, he, he doesn't look like he, he looks like a power forward. Like if, if you shrunk up three inches, he, he, you look at him and say, how does this guy compete on an NBA floor with seven footers? Well, the, the, the answer is he was just so damn technically sound. Uh, he could get buckets. Uh, I could I, I compare him a lot to uh, James Harden to where he wasn't the greatest athlete on the floor, but he would, he, he, he knew how to draw fouls. He knew how to frustrate you. He knew how to put you in situations where you just kind of gave up and let him shoot rather than risk fouling him again. And he he really was the the guy that I think brought the Pistons up to the Celtics level. Well, be on the lookout. We've got an Adrian Dantley episode coming very very soon. Uh, looking forward to talking about the teacher. Um, so I, after they get uh, Dantley, uh, they, let's go to the nineteen eighty seven Eastern Conference Finals because this is the one that everybody wants to talk about this is the, yeah, this, this is, is the this is act 2 this is the this is the second movie in the series this is the, the crescendo the one that this is like the the uh, the empire strikes back yes. <laughs> and speaking of, of speaking of striking there was a lot of striking happening <laughs> in this series particularly in game 3 larry bird and uh, bill ambeer get into a tussle when I'll, let's just say it bill bill threw him on the ground I mean, Bill oh, oh, close lined him. Yeah. yeah I don't Bill think threw. he had the intent, but Bird pump faked him into the air, and it was such a great pump fake. Uh, I, I think Lambeer's first instinct was, I'm going to foul him. I'm not going to let him get an end one on me. And he was a little bit overzealous there, but I don't think he had any, I don't think he he went into that play with an intent of, of harming Larry Bird. It just kind of worked out that way. Where, look, back in that, back in those days, um, yeah, there was the old saying, make them earn it at the line. Don't give them the end one. Right. And that the Pistons took that to an extreme where if they're going to foul you, they're going to foul you. They're not going to let you make the basket too, which I kind of wish we had more of that today. But that's a different story. Uh, but yeah, uh, you had that close line. But I think the most important thing is uh, the Pistons essentially uh, uh, stepping up and uh, standing up to the bully. And after uh, they get destroyed in games one and two in the garden again, which they had very, uh, very much difficulty winning, uh, they come back for game three. Uh, as you said, uh, 
Lambeer clotheslines Larry Bird in a play. I believe they both got ejected because yes. yeah, Larry Bird gets up and fires the ball at Lambeer's head. I mean, not really an equal. Uh, well, there was some <laughs> punches thrown on the ground. Oh, yeah, yeah, they, mean, yeah. yeah, you're right. They were. Um, but, you know, lost in all that is the Pistons were blowing out the Celtics anyway. And the Pistons double down. Uh, they play game four, not even a day later. And the the Pistons just absolutely stomp the Celtics. Uh, 145 to 119. Uh, one of my favorite Pistons playoff games of all time. It is the most points to this day that the Celtics have ever allowed in a playoff game. Uh, they just ran up the score on them. Uh, they made it personal. And Adrian Dantley in those two games, three and four, he scores 57 points, uh, shoots 70% from the floor. The Celtics could not deal with him at all. Um, th this was kind of Dantley's high point uh, as a Detroit Piston. Uh, the dominance that he showed in that series. And then we now we go to game five with the series tied and the Pistons have all the momentum. And Robert Parrish uh, decides sometime around the end of the third quarter that he has had enough of Bill Ambeer. Play by Darren Day. It doesn't fall. The tip by Parrish. He can't get it to fall. And Parrish takes Lambeer to the ground with a right The security guards are out on the floor right now, too. Well, they had said it was only a matter of time till somebody did this. Let's watch. You see a left elbow there. Does, does Paris came to the left? I mean, whoa. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a shot. That's a, that's a cheap no shot. No foul. No foul <laughs> call on Robert Parrish, by the way. No, no foul. No foul call. The, the, the foul that they are referring to in the clip uh, it was actually called on Darren Day, uh, the Celtics uh, guard for, uh, I think it was a rebounding foul. But in any case, Robert Parrish was not even called for a foul. The referee's looking right at it. Um, so, yeah, Robert Parrish, even though he he two-pieced or three-pieced Bill Ambier right in the face, uh, is allowed to continue playing the game. He does get suspended for game six. So Yes, but he fit. still is able to finish this game, which is right. the important thing because it's uh, this is a nail biter the entire way through. Uh, the Detroit Pistons, uh, they pull ahead in the final minutes. Uh, they clearly look like the better team uh, in the in in the clutch, and it looks like they are about to walk away with a major franchise changing playoff victory. Uh, when Bird goes to the hole, uh, he gets triple teamed. Rodman blocks him, and. And they they throw the ball off a Celtic. The ball goes out of bounds off of a Celtics player. So the Pistons have the ball and a one point lead with just five seconds left. It looks like the lights are about to go out on the Celtics. So I'm and sorry to happens. I'm sorry to all my uncles before I play this. Get it in quickly. Does the Lambier stolen by Bird on the cut to DJ? I'm so sorry I had to do that. Uh, well, you... at least it's not the Johnny Most call. I, I, I I'm actually I, I like the the Tom Gorman one. Better. I could I could do the Johnny Most. No, the... no, no, no. We're good. Hey, we're Bird good. steals the ball. The you, the you, you, you've done enough. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, yeah, the the most famous single play in the history of this rivalry. Bird, really one of the famous plays in NBA history. Bird stealing the inbounds pass. 
which Isaiah, for some inexplicable reason, threw underneath his own freaking basket. Yeah. Uh, Bird intercepts it, uh, funnels it to Dennis Johnson. Dennis Johnson hits the layup. There's still a second left, but it doesn't. The game at that point was essentially over, and Boston steals, absolutely steals game five to take a three games to two lead. Uh, as you said, Parrish was suspended for game six. Uh, the Pistons come home, and I think this is, of all the CBS intros of all time, I think this one is my favorite. Isaiah Thomas and the Detroit Pistons are relishing their role as the upstart challengers in the Eastern Conference Finals. They have confronted the world champion Celtics with pride and resolve. And while they trail the series three games to two, the Brash Pistons return home tonight where they've been virtually unbeatable. Defending an NBA title is no easy task. Just ask the Boston Celtics. The grueling playoff grind has transformed Celtic green into battered shades of black and blue. But true character often triumphs over adversity, and such is the case with Boston. They lead this series because when a hero was needed, the Celtics looked around and upstepped Larry Bird. His last second steal in Game 5 will forever be etched in history, as Boston is now one victory away from the NBA Finals. This has been a series of contrasts from textbook basketball to unmitigated violence. And tonight, the Pistons need to survive one more battle. Unmitigated violence right here on CBS. You, you, will, you will never again see a, a promo for an NBA playoff game uh, where unmitigated violence uh, is one of the selling points. I absolutely love that. That it is just a perfect uh, encapsulation of 1980s basketball of the Pistons Celtics rivalry. Of that, that that to me is like my movie trailer for this for my, for, for this series <laughs> for my fictional uh, trilogy made about this series. That is just perfect. And uh, the Pistons do survive. They win Game Six uh, rather easily, like they won their other home games. Uh, they go to game seven and uh, the Pistons just can't catch any decent luck. Uh, Robert Parrish is back from suspension. Uh, the Pistons are still really controlling the game through three quarters uh, towards the end of the third quarter. Uh, there's a loose ball and Adrian Dantley and Vinnie Johnson, who are the two self, the two Pistons that the Celtics absolutely couldn't uh, had trouble with defensively. Uh, they both died for the loose ball. They both hit each other right in the head. Uh, Adrian Dantley is knocked unconscious. Uh, Vinnie Johnson, they, uh, essentially, they both get concussions. Uh, and Adrian Dantley finishes the game in the hospital. Uh, Vinnie comes back briefly, but he clearly shouldn't have been on the court, and he gets pulled. And from that point on, the Celtics take control in the fourth quarter, and they win. And this is really the most heartbreaking loss in Pistons history. We've talked about it before on that Vinnie Johnson episode, but I I urge everyone to go back and watch the video of Dantley and Johnson colliding. You can hear it. You can hear yeah, it on it, TV. It is, it is very sickening that you it's can like a hear gunshot. Like, yeah, two human skulls without helmets just like butting into each other, and you can hear it. It, it is it is very very ugly. 
Well, the next year, 1988, it finally we, happens. We, yeah, we, we should go over the whole, um, you know, Bird dominates game seven. Yeah. I mean, that winds up being the story rather than the Pistons were controlling the game anyway. Uh, and, and Dennis Rodman after the game says, you know, if Larry Bird was, you know, if he were a, a, a black player, he would just, uh, like, he's overrated because he's white, basically. And then Isaiah kind of jokingly, I think, backs him up. Uh, I don't think he was I, – I, I think there was a lot of sarcasm there, but media certainly didn't take it that way, and it turned into be this uh, – it, it turned into this big um, uh, this big media circus, which it really didn't need to be. But, again, it's back in the 1980s, and people were still sensitive about, you know, Bird being white for some reason. Uh, so, there's yeah. A mo- you, you there's got- a moment, though, at a press conference with Larry and Isaiah – yeah, or some idiot that, yeah. pulls out the tape recorder and plays it while they're both sitting right there. Like it just and Isaiah looks like visibly yeah, neither, pissed off. Neither of them want to be there. Uh, Bird, who is not really offended by this at all, he just he's he is there to play basketball. He doesn't care about uh, uh, anything, you know, to this degree. And and Isaiah really is kind of backed into a corner where he nothing he can say can help the situation. And yeah, I, I have to bring it up because it's part of the rivalry, but I think this is one instance where I think both teams were, were or at least I, both Isaiah and Larry Bird were kind of trying to back away from this and the media just wouldn't let it die. Uh, but it, it kept the bird, it kept the Pistons Celtics rivalry in the public consciousness for, you know, the entire calendar year until they had their rematch in 88. Yes, 1988, uh, I think one of my favorite Piston seasons of all time, just because I used to watch that tape all the time, not like I can actually remember it, uh, because I was like three years old. Uh, But yes, the, the, the Pistons were coming off 21 straight losses on that parquet floor at the Boston Garden. Could not win. Could not win. Mixed in there is, is two road games they played in the, the Hartford Civic Center in Connecticut, which they also lost. So technically they run a 23-game road losing streak against Boston. Uh, yeah. But yes, 21 of them were, were played in the Boston Garden. That's, um, that's, re- like, that's similar to, you know, the Lions not winning in Lambeau for all those years. And, you know, it just, uh, it's when, and, when and, stuff and like that in, happens, it's crazy. Mixed in with that is a game they played in Milwaukee. <laughs> They, oh yeah, yeah. So there's some symmetry there. Um, all right. So, uh, the Pistons, and by 1988, this was even though they lost in the conference finals to the Celtics in '87, it was obvious to everybody that this was a team that was only going to get better. And the Celtics uh, didn't have any new blood uh, coming in. Sadly, with the the passing of Lynn Bias, so they were very reliant on their old guard. And eventually everyone knew they were going to decline. It was just a matter of when. So everyone looked at 1988 as the year that that maybe the Pistons would be the better team. And uh, during the season, it didn't really play out that way. Uh, both teams split their home games three, uh, three to three. Uh, the Celtics had the better record. Uh, they finished with the number one seed in the East again. The Pistons had to settle for number two. Uh, they rematched in the conference finals. Uh, Pistons had a much easier time getting there, which I think helped them in game one. Uh, they were much fresher. Uh, the Celtics had to 
scratch and claw their way past uh, Milwaukee for seven games. Well, the Pistons just, you know, they walked over the Bulls in five, so they had like an extra week off. And that showed in the first game where uh, Isaiah just goes off. He has 35 points, 12 assists. Uh, the Pistons break that long losing, that long uh, Boston Garden losing streak that you alluded to earlier. Uh, so right away, the the Boston Garden jinx is, is gone. Uh, Pistons are up one to nothing. And it looks like it might be a short series. And then game two happens. And, and uh, the, the Pistons are up by three points on an Isaiah uh, three-pointer with just a few seconds to go and Kevin they throw the the Boston Celtics throw they, they run a play for Larry Bird to get this run a screen to get Larry Bird open for a three and the pass is so far off it lands right in the hands of Kevin McHale who was wide the frick open but Kevin McHale to anyone that ever has known him or watched him play not a three-point shooter he has a range of maybe 16 or 17 feet uh, the three-point line, six or seven feet beyond his range. But he grabs it. He knows he has to shoot the damn thing anyway. Um, his foot was on the line, but I'm not even going to – okay. His, he, but his foot was clearly on the line. It should have been a two. But the bottom line is he swishes it. The refs give him three points. There's no replay back then, and the Celtics go on to win in overtime. And then the Celtics uh, actually go to Detroit and split the two road games. So – they're feeling great now. Uh, they come home, uh, Boston Garden, game five. It's tied at two. They've got two of their last three uh, at home. And uh, the momentum, you can clearly see the momentum is all there. It's the first half, they just destroy the Pistons. They're up 58, 54 to 40 at halftime. The Pistons have trouble. Uh, they have trouble getting decent looks. Uh, the Celtics are getting whatever they want. And to me, this is the most significant game, not only in the rivalry for the Pistons, but in Detroit Pistons history. Uh, they come back, uh, like, really almost immediately. They, the, the Celtics at one point, I think they went up by 16 early in the third quarter, and the Pistons just come right back. They play, I think, some of the best defense I've ever seen uh, an NBA team play for two quarters. Uh, they shut down Larry Bird. They shut down. They shut down everybody. Uh, they were making passes difficult. Uh, they they should have won in regulation. Um, uh, I think Dennis Johnson hits a shot like lying down on his back. He banks one in, and the, the Celtics uh, they they take the Pistons to overtime. Larry Bird has a shot to win the game. Uh, Rodman forces him into an air ball. Uh, they go into overtime, and the Pistons dominate from there mikhail fouls out and the overtime really isn't even close the pistons win going away and to me that is the franchise changing victory that that game five the year before would have been and that they go up three two they come back home they finish the celtics off uh bird who just tortured them for for two different playoffs series he only shoots he has the worst series of his career he shoots just 35 percent uh it's not because of injuries it's not because of it. just the pistons were just better at that point they had rodman they had sally they had mahorn they had their whole team loaded up to defend larry bird and they were the really the only team that's ever made larry bird look bad uh, he looked bad in that series he got his numbers anyway because of usage but 
uh, when when the Celtics needed a basket, uh, Larry Bird couldn't provide one, and that's the only time in his career you've really been able to say that about him. Then obviously the uh, the Pistons go on to the '88 Finals. Unfortunately, lose to the Lakers. Um, I there was there was like a minute left on that clock when they just yeah. decided to call the game. But we're not going to talk about that today. We'll <laughs> we'll talk about that in our Pistons. Lakers uh, rivalry episode. Which we, we will get to that at some point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and there's going to be a lot of talk about it. Uh, the Pistons and Celtics, I think a lot of people forget this, but they, they play again uh, the very next year in yeah, 89. 30 year in a row, fourth time in five years. Yeah, in the, in the first round, although it's not much of a series and Larry Bird is uh, hampered with injuries, so he doesn't even wind up playing. But you as you said off the air, there was the threat that he might be there that scared people. Yeah, so so Larry Bird very early on in that 88-89 season, uh, he opts out for Achilles uh, surgery, and also something having to do with bone spurs in his feet. Um, he didn't tear his, but it, it was still surgery that was needed. So everyone thought he'd be out for the season. And the Celtics still with, with Parrish and McHale, they, they back their way into the playoffs as the eighth seed. The, the Pistons are the dominant team in the league uh, that year. They are the number one seed, 63 wins. And there was talk in that playoff series. Uh, Larry Bird is looming over it uh, because there was talk that if the Celtics can extend the series to four or five games, Larry Bird might be able to play. And it never comes to that. The Pistons sweep them in three. But there there is that kind of worry to where, oh, my God, is, is Bird going to – are we going to have to face Larry Bird in the first round? And you you can tell by their motivation because the, the Pistons go to game three in Boston and they just, they, they stomped the Celtics out. Uh, not really a game in the fourth quarter. Uh, they, they made sure that Larry Bird was be, would watch that series as a spectator and that's it. Well, fear not. Larry Bird would get a chance to play the Pistons in the playoffs one more time in the 1991 Sorta. semifinals when... It was uh, everybody's falling apart. Let's just see yeah. what we can do. Yeah, yeah. This was kind of a series to see um, who would get stomped out by the Bulls in the conference finals. Uh, both the Celtics and the Pistons were brought down by injuries that season. Um, Isaiah famously with his, his wrist surgery um, couldn't couldn't even shoot the ball. He returned. Uh, he, he missed a bunch of games that season. He returned at the end of the season, but he, he still wasn't the same guy. Uh, Larry Bird's back problems were really beginning. This was the first year that his back was beginning to fail him uh, significantly. Uh, it didn't stop him from skewering the Pacers in, in the first round of the playoffs that season, where he famously uh, hit his head on the floor, got a concussion, came back in the second half and dominated. Uh, but really this series to me is – this might be my favorite uh, because both the, the two big guns for the two franchise players for both teams were essentially taken out. Uh, Bird was a non-participant in a lot of these games. He had to miss a few. Same thing with Isaiah. Uh, his wrist was bothering him so badly. Uh, so this was really about the, the support and cast of both, uh, of both teams. And uh, the, the the Pistons, Bird misses game one. The Pistons win at the Garden. Uh, the Celtics were favored in the series. They were the second seed. Pistons were the third seed. Uh, so the Pistons win game one. Larry Bird comes back. The Celtics win game two. And uh, game three, uh, Isaiah plays, and he probably shouldn't have. Um, 
the the Celtics win this game 115 to 83. It is the worst playoff loss uh the Pistons have ever suffered at home. I, I it might have been their worst playoff loss ever. I'm trying to remember a word. No, I'm sure the Bucks beat the Morris at some point in, in 2019. But um anyway, uh it is a 30 point ass kicking or 32 point ass kicking uh that they suffer. The they get booed off their own floor on NBC. It is that bad. And it looks like the Pistons are finished. Um, so I, Isaiah doesn't even play game four. He barely plays game five. He plays like 10 minutes off the bench. And what happens, though, uh, the Pistons win those games. Uh, Mark Aguirre uh, steps up, has a career playoff high of 34 points in game four. Um, Joe Dumars uh, absolutely kills it in game five in Boston. He scores 32. Uh Bill Lambeer scores 27. Like the, I think it's great how the supporting cast of the Pistons steps up, uh, essentially without Isaiah Thomas. Uh, they come back after that ass-kicking. They win uh, the next two games. They go up 3-2. And then we have game six, which is, I think, maybe the most underrated game that people never talk about. Um, Kevin McHale scores a playoff career high, uh, 34 points in that game six. Uh, the Pistons still control the game. The Celtics come back in the fourth quarter. And in a a play that Celtics fans complain about to this day, uh, it's tied with about a minute left. Uh, D. Brown misses a shot in the lane. Kevin McHale tips it in, and they call him for offensive goaltending. And when I say that ball was at least six inches off the rim, I might be underselling it. Like, it was a terrible, awful call. And there was a minute left, so there there could have been things done at that point. But it, it you could argue it cost the Celtics that game. Uh, even though they, in the fourth quarter, tied, uh, they go into overtime, and Isaiah, with broken wrist and all, uh, comes to life uh, in overtime, hits three straight clutch buckets, like three straight jumpers, uh, I think one of me banks into three. <laughs> like it, it, it was just, it, it's not like his wrist suddenly felt better. He just, it, it was a pride thing, which I, I think for both of these teams uh, makes this rivalry special. There was so much pride involved on both sides. You had guys uh, digging deep and bringing the best out of each other. And that kind of what happens to Isaiah Thomas in the overtime of this game. Uh, he finishes off the Celtics in overtime. Uh, with clutch bucket after clutch bucket. Uh, Pistons go on. They win the series. Uh, well, that is the clincher. They win the series 4-2 to close the book on the Isaiah Thomas-Larry Bird playoff rivalry. Uh, the Pistons wind up taking three of the five playoff series. It is the only – the Pistons are the only team uh, in the East that Larry Bird has a losing record against – or well, the Celtics had a losing record against during the Larry Bird era uh, – both in series and all-time uh, wins-losses. Uh, the, the Pistons were the one team that were capable of playing the Celtics and beating them at their game. Well, that's uh, that's going to do it for the for that you know portion of the rivalry. Uh, both these teams were so bad in the nineties. Uh, you know, Boston was kind of kind of turned into a bit of a laughing stock there for a while. Yeah. Uh, and then the Rick Pitino era, which, uh, you know, was really bad for them. But fast forward all the way to 2002, 
suddenly the Pistons and the Celtics are playing each other uh, in the playoffs again. Yeah, surprisingly. Um, I think people kind of expected the Celtics with with Antoine Walker and Paul Pierce to to develop to this point. I don't think anyone expected the Pistons to be there. They were supposed to be, you know, in purgatory after Grant Hill left town. Joe Dumars did an excellent job of of slapping a team around uh, Jerry Stackhouse. He, he steals Ben Wallace from Orlando. The Pistons actually have the, the superior record. They are the two seed in the East for this series with a roster that you would not even, they were picked to f- finish 14th in the East. They finished second. Uh, just a great season. Uh, but it, it kind of, this is where it kind of came crashing down. Uh, the, the Pistons face the Celtics and the Celtics just have more talent than they do top to bottom. Uh, they know not only Walker, they not uh, and Pierce, but they also have Kenny Anderson. They have Rodney Rogers. They have Tony Doug. They, they have a lot of really good veteran role players on this team. And these, both of these teams were defensive, defense first, offense uh, really never. <laughs> so, the the Pistons do win the first game. They blow out Boston at the Palace. Um, but a lot of that is on emotion. Cliff Robinson and Michael Curry go off. And you can just can't count on Michael Curry going off every game. Uh, Celtics blow out the Pistons. They 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 take game two. They tie the series, and we go to Boston for game three. And this is I still think uh, this is the ugliest NBA game, NBA playoff game that I've ever seen in my life. Uh, tell tell teams, them the score, Keith. Tell them the score. Tell them how bad it was. Six. The the final score, uh, sixty six to sixty four. Oh God. Um, it is every it is probably uglier than the final score uh, indicates. Um, both teams failed to shoot thirty five percent. Let me repeat that: both teams uh, failed to shoot thirty five percent from the floor for a playoff game. I don't even know how uh, that's possible. I, I think the ultimate irony is that on the final play of the game, Jerry Stackhouse banks in a three pointer, a an absolute prayer. But it is half a second after the after the clock expires, so they don't count it. Uh, but yeah, some some statistics from this one are just uh, Cliff Robinson two for eleven, uh, Chucky Atkins one for eight, uh, even the great Corliss Williamson, the super efficient Corliss six for fourteen uh, on the Celtics end. Paul Pierce seven for twenty three. Uh, Rodney Rogers, one for eight, Tony Delk, 0 for four, Eric Williams, 0 for five. I could go on, but it was, this was a special kind of bad, uh, both teams played their asses off, but anytime the final score or the, the halftime score is 37 to 33, uh, you know, you're in for a very, (laughs) a very ugly, uh, performance, but so yeah, the, that game kind of ended any chance the Pistons had of being competitive in this series. Uh, they lose game three uh, at the buzzer. They lose game four. They come back home in game five. They they make a game out of it, but the Celtics eventually, uh, with Paul Pierce and Walker, that's they just have a little bit too much too much offensive firepower, and the Pistons don't have any. Um, so that that is the brief um, rebirth to this rivalry. A very ugly playoff series. Uh, Somewhat competitive, uh, but I think there are interesting things to like about it. Well, there's one more uh, Mm -hmm. moment in this rivalry. Uh, Six years later, 2008, 
the uh, the Pistons and the Celtics meet up in the Eastern Conference Finals again, and this time, um, it, I have some thoughts, and I hate Rajon Rondo, and it's because Who of this series. Things? It's because of this series, though. Um, Even the people that play with Rajon Rondo don't like Rajon Rondo. <laughs> yeah. There's a particular part of this series that, and I can't remember what game it was, and it might not even be a memorable moment for anybody, but I think it was Chauncey has the ball, and Rondo's guarding him, and he's got his hand directly in his face. Directly in Chauncey's face. I think he's face guarding him, yeah. Yeah, look, that feels dirty to me. I'm sorry. As long as you don't touch the guy's face, but that's hard to do. I know, but... Come on, man. Really? Yeah, that's like the little brother who's I'm not yeah. touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. It it it's I I would my temper would not have been able to uh take that. Like and I don't have much of a temper, but that those are the little things that that will yeah, that'll set me off. If he would have done that in the 80s, you would have got you would have got punched in the face by somebody. I I don't know. Joe Barry Carroll would have knocked him out or something. Who knows? Duck right or Duckworth rather would have, would have, would have, you know, big booted him or something like you just, I just hate it. I hate it so much. And, uh, and, and the problem was it was working. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's what Bill, Bill, yeah, Chauncey didn't have a great series, uh, no. but rip Hamilton. However, that might've been one of the better playoff series he's ever had. Uh, rip and Ray Allen um, winning against each other and, I, I think that was the fun of that series was watching them play against each other. Uh, the the Celtics, uh, to that point, were 43-6 and six at home coming into that series. But one of those six w- losses was to the Pistons uh, during the season. And the Pistons follow up on that. They beat the Celtics uh, in game two to tie the series. They steal that home court that the Celtics... Uh, we're so proud of. Uh, so, and Rip Hamilton goes off in that game. He scores 25. And on a side note, th- this was my last uh, year uh, living uh, locally in the Detroit area. And I knew I was I was moving out uh, that summer. So before the season started, I got season tickets to the Pistons. I figured, okay, this is going to be my farewell tour. And it, what, a, what a tour it was. I mean, the Pistons went, won more games than people expected. I think they won 59 games. I want to say 58, 59. They had the second best record in the league. Unfortunately, the Celtics, uh, having acquired Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett, had the best record. They won somewhere in the mid-60s, I think. They were by far the most dominant team. Uh, but the Pistons could were one of the few that could play at their level. So I had tickets for game three. And, you know, I'm walking in there like <laughs> – like, okay, uh, the Celtics had their fun, but, you know, the, the Pistons have been here before. The Celtics haven't. Uh, they're they're going to show them how it's done, and they absolutely did not show that. The, they got their asses kicked 94-80 to 80, yep. uh, in a game that was really over in the first quarter. Uh, the, the Celtics came out motivated, uh, hit them with everything they had, and the Pistons were just kind of flat. And to be honest with you, the, the 14 points was kind of – it was – generous that it, the game finished that closely because the Celtics could have won by 20 or 30. Uh, they, they, the Pistons do win game four uh, to tie the series. They go to game five. It looks like uh, it goes down to the wire. Uh, Ray Allen makes some plays in the late in the game. 
and they they just barely lose to Boston in game five. I mean, it was close, though. So everyone's thinking, okay, we're, Pistons are going to come home. We're going to take it to seven. And I had tickets for that game, too. This was my final my final game, my farewell game uh, as a Detroit Pistons fan to the city of Detroit. And the Pistons dominated that game. They were up, uh, I think, eight points after three quarters. And everything's going their way. And it looks like we're going to see a game seven. And they just kind of fall apart. The Celtics blitz them in the fourth quarter. 29 to 13 Pierce scores 12 of those and that the lights kind of went out and they've I, honestly, they've kind of been out on the Pistons ever, ever since that game. Uh, sadly enough, that was the last great uh, stage that the Pistons have ever had in their history was that 2008 game six. And it was kind of fitting that the Celtics clo- uh, were the team that kind of closed the door on them. And we're kind of waiting for them to get back ever since. Meanwhile, uh, the, the, the Celtics have just had this incredible run, even though they haven't won a championship. Uh, they've been a fixture in the in the league ever since that that series. Yep. Uh, you know, well, they went on to win the championship. You know that year. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. after two thousand eight, yeah. Right. Uh, right now, you know, these teams couldn't be farther apart. The Celtics have the best record in the NBA, and the Pistons have the worst record in the NBA. So uh the the rivalry's off for for a little bit maybe it'll come back at some point maybe when the pistons uh you know can get a, a good team on the floor and a consistent team on the floor but right now the celtics are one of the best teams in the nba and honestly they could be a team that could win it all this year we'll see uh but that's going to do it for our Pistons Celtics rivalry episode. It uh, it's been fun. We're going to do more of these for sure. There'll be a Pistons Lakers episode. There'll be definitely be a Pistons Bulls episode. Um, maybe I don't know Pistons Bucks. There was something there, right? Uh, Pistons Nets. I always thought there was a nice little five minute rivalry there. Um, oh, we can go back to that was Isaiah Thomas's first playoff series win was against the Nets. Oh yeah, against okay. the uh, uh, Sugar Ray Richardson. But, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's, this is going to be our last episode of 2022. We uh, are excited about 2023. We're going to start it off with, with a bang. We're going back to the drafts again, 1997 NBA draft. This is going to be the uh, Tim Duncan year. Uh, I believe Chauncey's in this draft as well. This is a, this is a fun one. Uh, Tracy McGrady is in this draft or is he in the 98 draft? I, I get those mixed up for some reason. No, he's in this draft. Yes, Tracy McGrady is in this draft. This is going to be an interesting episode, and we've got another great guest coming on with us, Doc Joe Brown from Pistons Pro Wrestling. I forewarn all of you, there will be some pro wrestling discussions on next week's episode. Uh, it's just going to happen. You know, Keith Keith is going to be held hostage, essentially, for a few minutes uh, while Doc and I talk a little bit of wrestling. Looking forward to that episode, and we've got a lot of great things coming up for you, including a very, 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 very big guest uh, that we are currently working with uh, right now to, to nail down a date, hoping for February. We'll see what happens. Um, but we can't wait to bring that to you. We can't wait to bring a whole bunch of great stuff to you in 2023. Happy New Year to everybody, and uh, we'll see you next week.